while our choir was singing the anthem, I was reminded that next Sunday morning we're going to be blessed as they present a cantata for us with orchestra. So I encourage you to pray for them in advance and at the same time invite folks to come be with you. It'll be a wonderful time of worship. And then something you were not privileged to this morning I want to share with you. In fact, I think there are only two people in this room who are aware of it. Little Daniel, when he was standing with you all, right before Dad prayed, he turned around and looked at me and winked. (laughs) And that's special. (laughs) Praise God. You got a beautiful family. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the children you've given us. We thank you, dear God, for our families. We thank you, O Lord, for the way you have blessed us with gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities. We thank you, dear God, because you're a forgiving God and a loving God, a God who helps us start again and then to start again a God who doesn't get so discouraged with us that you throw us aside. You've given us a beautiful model for the way we're to love our families and the way we're to love each other. You've shown us, dear God, through the expression of giving your only begotten Son, that he might die, that we might live, what love is all about. And Father, you're modeling for that for us on a daily basis and encouraging us to love even our enemies. What a God. A God who sets an example that we would never think of on our own. A God who knows how to love. A God who's loved us. And a God who wants us to love. Father, I ask you to forgive us. Sometimes we withhold our love. Sometimes we think, dear God, that we're an exempt person and that when somebody offends us or hurts us or does wrong toward us, that somehow we're exempt from loving them. And I pray, dear God, that we might learn from you and through your son Jesus that you want us to be a forgiving and loving people. Then, dear Father, the watching world will understand the love that you have. So I pray that you'd forgive us, Father. If there are people in our families or people that we've worked with or people that we've met along the way of life that we've turned our backs on, I pray that you would help us change, that we would repent and that we would follow the example that you have set us. Thank you for that example, Father. I thank you, Lord, for your work in the world that we live in. While we see many things that are disheartening and many things that are an open rejection of who you are and what you're all about, we're still reminded, dear God, that this is your creation. And that while we do not always see or understand that you are working your purpose out and that you can never be thwarted, Never, not one time, for you are a sovereign God. You're an independent authority. 
and you're acting out your very nature in the midst of all of us. We thank you for that, Lord. Father, there are a lot of things in our country and other people's countries that need to change. There's a lot of inhumanity to people. There are people who use their positions of authority and power and money to hurt other people. There are people, dear God, who think life's just about them and they forget about other people. As we look at our own country, we can see that in virtually every aspect of our land and it does seem to be growing, Lord. So our prayer this morning is a very simple prayer. Please, dear God, come visit with us. Please, dear God, come and touch people and and do what John the Baptist was called to do, change the hearts of fathers toward their own children, change the hearts of people in this land toward you. So, Lord, we pray for a spiritual revival of our country. But not just for us, Lord, that we might then take part in a revival that would reach around the world. (coughs) Please, dear God, bless those who are in office and bless those who serve in a variety of other functions, leading people. Bless our military chaplains and those that they serve in the military. Bless those who work in our hospitals and our medical fields. Lord, when they start to get discouraged, help them get refocused and know they're serving you and not just getting a paycheck. And help them to live that example and that faith. Thank you for our church, Father. We're about to start in the process of seeking a new senior pastor and I pray at this very moment that you would be working in someone's life somewhere around this country or even overseas that you would like to have here as senior pastor of this good church. And I pray, dear God, that you would raise up from our midst those that you want to serve on that committee. And I pray, O Lord, your blessing on them day by day. I also want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our Sunday school ministry and so many other ministries. It's very obvious in Sunday school and in our music ministry that you're at work, and we come to thank you today for that. Father, we need to be a humble people before you and to ask your forgiveness and to give thanks at the same time. What a God. What a Savior. What a Holy Spirit that you should love and abide with us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to the Gospel of Luke this morning, the first chapter, and we're going to start with the fifth verse. The Gospel of Luke the first chapter, and we're going to study the 5th through the 20th verses. I encourage you to keep your Bible open in your lap, and I encourage you to follow along and see why I say what I say. For many years, probably like some of you, I attended church 
I went to Sunday school classes. I was around the Bible. I was given a Bible when I joined the church. And it never spoke to me. I could read the words sometimes, depending on which book of the Bible we're talking about. But it never touched me. And when the Lord opened this book up and allowed me to be the benefactor, it changed my life. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of this book. I encourage you as you listen to it being read that you'd come with anticipation. Let's pray together. Father, we do come with anticipation this morning. We're going to read a story that we've heard many times before, a Christmas story. And yet, Lord, it's fresh and new as your Holy Spirit impacts us with this story. So give us the eyes to see what we have not seen before. Give us the sensitivity, dear God, to see anew even the things we've learned in the past. And please, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help it to make a difference in the way we live our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I so often do, I sat in my study preparing my sermon, and I saw a sub-theme. You know, Scripture is full of sub-themes. Whenever you deal with a passage, there's always one predominant theme. And the predominant theme is obviously the birth of John, who becomes John the Baptist. But one of the sub-themes that's all through this passage, and I invite you to look for it as we move through the passage, is how you can have true happiness. The world that you and I were born into is a secular world, and it is becoming more and more secular. And that secular humanistic influence says to us, and this appeals to our fallen nature, it says to us, you need to be everything you can be. It's all about you. You need to get as much education as you can get. You never can get enough. You need to develop yourself. You need to accumulate for yourself all of the life experiences you can accumulate. And as you build yourself up and realize who you are, you're going to be happy. Hello? Some of us have tried that, haven't we? That doesn't work. We ought to develop ourselves. We ought to use the gifts God's given us, no question. But that's not how you derive happiness. When you read through this passage, you're going to see how you derive happiness. You know how you do that? It comes from your family. We talk about a covenant-keeping family. It comes when mama and daddy not only teach their children the things of God, but model it for them. You're going to see that in this passage. It comes as that family starts to grow and you choose a spouse who is also a God-fearing spouse. And you bring two God-fearing people together to be husband and wife. And you're not unequally yoked. And then together, the focus is on God, not on self. And again, you're going to see that all through this passage. 
So I encourage you to watch for that. I want you to look with me at the fifth verse of the first chapter as we begin our reading and listen very carefully as God speaks to us. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijar, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you. And to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at the first seven verses, what they do is they introduce the characters who are going to take part in this event. And the character list goes like this. First, there was Herod. Herod I, sometimes called Herod the Great. He was a man that was chosen by the Roman Senate to be the king over what we generally think of as Palestine. He was given an army, and he was told to go and create that kingdom that he would rule over Can you imagine? He took an army and went in amongst the Jews and their neighbors and began to dominate them, began to suppress them, and he formed them into a country year by year over 37 years until he had a kingdom where he was king. 
he thought of himself as king of the Jews. And that's how he wanted to be remembered in history. Well, to do what he did, there had to be a lot of cruelty. There had to be a lot of disenfranchising of people's rights. Because this is a foreign army coming into their land and a foreign ruler who's now going to dominate that country. Toward the end of his rule, he receives word that a child has been born and that that child, it is rumored, will be king of the Jews. And you begin to see Herod's nature when he puts an order out that all of the children, little boys, two years of age and younger, in a specific geographic area, not just in the village where he's rumored to have been born, but a larger area that they are all to be killed. Now, you know, we read that about Herod. Imagine the president of our country at some point in history finding out that somebody else is going to be born and run against him, and he wants to continue in office. So he puts out an order to our armies, to our police, to everyone who's in that chain of command and says, I want all of the little boys, two years of age and younger, in a specific geographic area of the United States to be killed. And the army and or police break into your home or your children's home and they wantonly take the life of a child two years of age or younger. Or they're going down a road and they look out into a field and their children playing in the field and they stop and they kill all of the children under two years of age. And seemingly there's nobody who can stop them. That's who Herod was. He's just not a character in the Bible. He was a man who was cunning, a man who was capable, and a man who was cruel. If you take our fallen nature and you put no boundaries on it, and if you encourage it and you feed it, and the person never comes to know God, you have a Herod. And in every generation, there are people like Herod all around this world and in our country. It's a reality that we were born into this world totally depraved. And by the grace of God, you and I are not like Herod. Amen? Second character, Zacharias. We know a little bit about Zacharias. It says that he was of the, a priestly family of the division of Abijar. What that means is he was born into a family that were descendants of Aaron, the priestly family in Israel, that he grew up in that environment. He grew up going to temple like we grew up going to church, that he grew up in a home where his father was a priest and would talk about priestly things and spiritual things. He had all the benefit of all of that growing up. And when he became a man, he was then because he was a male in that tradition, he was appointed to be a priest. His whole life was conditioned toward that end. Gives you some insight into who he was and how steeped he was in Jewish tradition. 
The third character that's introduced to us is Elizabeth. She's also of the line of Aaron, the priestly line. So her father would have been a priest. She was raised in that same kind of spiritual environment. Let me tell you, you know this. You can be raised in a godly home with godly parents. They can pray for you. They can pray with you. That doesn't mean that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But you know what that does? That greases the slide so when he touches you, you just naturally move that direction. And if we were covenant-keeping, and I want you to follow this, if we were covenant-keeping families, people would not have a dramatic burning bush experience and walk down the aisle of a church or into a pastor's office or into a session meeting and for the first time profess Jesus as an adult. If we keep covenant, it's because we love the Lord and we create that environment in which God works to bring our children to faith. I have a theory about burning bushes. I'm a burning bush boy. I had a small burning bush in my life. But before the burning bush, you get singed by the world. And you get some scars. And you get a little calloused. Because life is hard when you don't know Christ. And many of you have had that experience. What a blessing to be raised in a home that's a God-fearing home. A home like this couple were raised in. We know two other things. And it's rather astounding language. In verse 6 it says, And they both were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, if you lift that out of context, you can say, ah, what they did is they were good and they earned their salvation. Out of context, that's what that says. But if you harmonize that with the teaching of Scripture, what you come up with is a very different approach. You begin to realize that when Romans 3.23 says, we are all born into this world sinners, all of us falling short of the glory of God, you have that truth on one hand and you have this truth on the other. And when you pull them together and harmonize them, by grace we are saved through faith. And once we come to know Jesus, it is then that we should walk in righteousness, that we should strive to please God. And that's what's being described to us here. The walk of two people who know the Lord and who are striving all the days of their life to be what God wants them to be. When you wake up in the morning, before you do anything, I did this this morning. I try to do it every morning. Say, good morning, Lord. Help me love you all day. Help me be the person you want me to be today. I want you to know you're not going to achieve that, so don't get a big head. But let it be the way you start your day, sincerely saying to God, help me to walk in righteousness. Help me to please you. Help me to focus on you. There's one other thing we know about this couple. They were advanced in years and they had never had a child. And they wanted a child, but it had never happened. 
Now, I want you to look down at verses 8 through 17. What you see, now that you know who the characters are, Herod, Zacharias, and Elizabeth, I want you to see the biblical event that has unfolded. Zacharias' time has come for him to go into the temple. And he has cast lots along with some other folks, and he's been chosen to be the honored priest. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. And he's going to walk into the main part of the temple with two other priests. And as they walk in, they're going to come into the Holy of Holies, and there is an altar where they burn incense. One of the priests is carrying hot coals. He lays the hot coals on top of the altar. The other priest is carrying the incense, and he lays the incense on top of the altar. And then that once-in-a-lifetime experience, Zacharias takes the incense and puts it on top of the coals and uprises the smoke. And as he does that, the people in the outer chamber the people in the women's chamber, the people outside the temple, many of them fall to the ground and start to pray. And the uniform prayer that is being prayed over the burning of incense is, Lord, bless our country. Lord, help Israel. And as the smoke rises from the incense, it is a reminder to all of them that their prayers are going up to God. Isn't that beautiful? Symbolic language? Is that an altar? We don't have an altar. You know what an altar is? It's not a table. It's a skirted piece of furniture. And the skirt goes all the way to the floor. So you can't use it as a table. You can't get your knees under it. It's on the back wall of the church. Or in the temple, if there were a temple today. So typically, there's a divided chancel. So when the congregation sits and looks, they can look all the way through and see the altar. And the altar is a place of sacrifice. Since the 1500s, we, in Reformed tradition, and that's not just Presbyterians, it's 60-some denominations, we don't have altars. Our sacrifice has already been made, hasn't it? It's finished. Jesus was that sacrifice. We don't need to reenact that, nor do we need to think in terms of re-crucifying him. Instead, we come together at a table. We call it a communion table or the Lord's table. And it's a reminder of a resurrected Christ who no longer hangs on a cross and no longer has to be atonement for our sin. It's a done deal. So we come to a communion table. Zacharias, and I wondered about the other two priests. Did you wonder about them? wonder if they stayed in the room or if they left. It's kind of like Paul on the Damascus Road. There were other people with him who didn't see what happened to him, and he was driven to his knees in subjection as the light of the Lord shone upon him. Now here Zacharias is about to have a spiritual experience. An angel appears. 
if an angel appears right now, right there, what would your reaction be? Wouldn't that be startling? It's not what you're expecting. Zacharias wasn't expecting that. God does not always do what you and I expect. Have you noticed that? He's God. He wants us to come along with him. He is not suggesting he's going to modify things to suit us. Zacharias appears, and Scripture says, virtually every time an angel appears, and fear struck him. You know what fear does to you? It makes your heart move real quick. It makes you kind of freeze. It makes you not be able to talk real well or think real well, and you're just kind of overwhelmed by what's happening. And here this angel is standing, and he says to Zacharias, God sent me to talk with you. Then he says, I want you to know your petition has been heard. Well, if he could think, his first thought might be, well, we're praying as a nation for God's blessing on our nation. And we want prosperity. We want more jobs. We want peace in our land. God came to give them prosperity. The angel is saying to Zacharias, he's going to bless your land, but not in the way you think. He's going to bless your land spiritually. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to raise up a forerunner to the promised Messiah. How often we pray and say, Lord, There's some things I have on my wish list, and I'd like you to do these things. And I certainly do think they're going to be on your heart, Lord, because I want them. And you ought to just kind of comply and come along. And what the angel is saying to Zacharias is, get ready. God is going to answer your prayer. And then he says specifically, and the way he's going to answer it, is he's going to give a child to you and Elizabeth. And you can almost see Zacharias repel at that thought, and he says, how can that possibly be? He's too old for that to happen. And in his own mind, that's not possible. Gabriel goes a step further. He says, let me tell you about this child that's going to be born. He's going to be a great blessing. He's going to be acknowledged as great by the nation of people. He's going to be set aside by God. He's not going to drink alcoholic beverage, which is a symbolic way of saying he's not going to be like everybody else. He's not going to join in. He's going to be a leader, even among leaders. And he goes on to say he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even while he's still in the womb. You know what makes that unique? The Holy Spirit, up until this point in history, and for a little bit more, is only given to people for a season. The Holy Spirit, we heard it in a Sunday school class this morning, in our covenant class, was given to Saul. And then at a time of God's choosing, the Holy Spirit was taken back from Saul and was given to David. Well, if you read through the Old Testament... The Spirit of God comes on a person 
And the Spirit of God helps accomplish in that person's life the things that God wants to see accomplished. He foretells in this passage that that same Holy Spirit is going to come on John and that John is going to be used by God to turn the hearts of fathers and mothers back to their own children where their children are more important than them living their own lives. Can you hear that? And then for them to turn to a whole nation of people under the power of that spirit and that God is going to change the hearts and minds of people. I pray every Sunday and many other times for renewal in our land. Do you know how possible it is? It's just as possible as we're reading about. It's exactly what God did in that day. He reached out to a nation of people, and he started it after 400 years of prophetic silence, and now he raises up John the Baptist, who is a forerunner to Jesus, and people begin to come to faith. It can happen in our country. Pray for it. Ask God to bless our petition. And then hang on. Interesting thing about the Holy Spirit. After Christ is raised from the dead, and after he has ascended back to heaven, he keeps a promise. He told his disciples, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. And on what we call Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit. But this time when his Spirit comes on a person, his Spirit never leaves that person. You are indwelt once you become a believer with the power of the Holy Spirit and his presence in you for the rest of your life. So you have built in this benefit of being able to walk in the Spirit and having God influence your life on a daily basis. And a little caveat, as that's happening, a demon cannot possess you. You are already possessed. You have a built-in defense mechanism that God's already given. What a blessing. What a blessing Pentecost is. Well, in this case, he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit on this little baby who's still in the womb, and from that point on, he is going to be filled with the Spirit of God. What a promise to make. Verses 18 through 20. What appears to be a strange thing takes place. Like so many others that we read about in Scripture, Zacharias musters the words and says to Gabriel, Hey, how can I know this is true? He's saying, I don't get it yet. I don't even believe it. Gabriel knows he doesn't believe it. He said, how can I be certain? He said, what more are you going to do to convince me? And Gabriel responds and says, you know, I stood in the presence of God and will continue to stand in the presence of God. I have come from him with good news for you, and you haven't received the good news. So you're not going to be able to speak. I'm going to strike you dumb. Why would he do that? 
I have a theory. Don't we all talk about our human experiences? If Zacharias didn't believe and he walked out of that temple, what would he say about that experience? Would he be able to explain what really happened? Would he be able to be a testimony to other people about what God was doing and about to do in that land? He would not have been able to do that. He wouldn't have the words that would grow out of a heart of faith. So what the angel says is, shh, you're not going to talk at all. I'm not going to let you. And when the baby is born, then I'll free up your tongue. And then you'll have something to talk about. You have something to talk about? You have something to tell people about your encounter with the risen Jesus Christ? If you do, under the power of the Holy Spirit, tell people during this Christmas season. If not, And wait on the Lord. This is one of the few times of year during the year when we have a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And that wonderful opportunity is to tell other people about Jesus. And contrary to what some major retailers are doing, you can do that. You can talk about Jesus. You can say Merry Christmas to someone. They can't tell you not to do that. Don't be muted. Jesus in the season when he was born. Let's pray together. Father, this is not our first Christmas, nor is it your first Christmas, Lord. You've been working with folks like us throughout the ages. It just happens that it's our turn again, Lord. I pray as we come to the table today that the oneness that we already have through your son Jesus with you, that it would become excited and rejuvenated. And I pray that you'd use these elements, Lord, to bring us closer to you. And I pray there would be a lasting effect So, Father, please set these elements aside and use them in our life. And we thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith, unto all those who truly turn unto him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know where those words come from? Right straight out of Scripture. An assurance from God unto us. Our hymn is hymn number 305. Let's stand and sing together. I'd like to give an invitation to you to come to this table. This is not uniquely a table set just for the members of our church, nor just for the members of our denomination. We practice open communion. What is required of anyone who comes to this table is first, that you have had a personal experience with Jesus Christ and that you know him as your Lord and your Savior. And you know in your heart of hearts that that qualifies you to partake. Secondly, that you're in good standing in the church that you are a member of, which implies you need to be a member of the Lord's church and that the leadership of that church have admitted you to the Lord's Supper here or at some other place. There are folks in churches that have been disciplined by their spiritual leadership. And one of the disciplines is to either temporarily or indefinitely remove the sacrament from a person. And that's why I say to you, if you're in good standing, if you're not under discipline, you're invited to partake of these elements. I want to be very quick to say to you, there's not a one of us who's qualified to come to this table. Not myself, none of us. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as forgiven sinners, this table has been set for us. So if you are repentant and do not have a sin that is abiding in your heart and that you're practicing, 
then I encourage you to come. If you have a sin that's not resolved, I encourage you not to partake, for there's a very vivid warning in Scripture that says, if we come to this table and judge it unworthily, that we will bring the condemnation of God on our own heads. So I encourage you to think through that. And if it's appropriate, to ask for forgiveness. And then to partake of these elements. If there's something you need to make right with someone after you leave church today, I encourage you to do that. If it's not appropriate to go to that person, then I encourage you to go back to the Lord and pray for that person and pray a blessing on their heart. Go back with me to a precious moment in human history. Jesus knows that he's about to be arrested. He's about to be tried for a crime he did not commit that he's about to be physically and emotionally abused and then humiliated, that he's going to be taken to a cross where common criminals are punished, and that he's going to allow himself to be nailed to a cross and there to hang with people gawking at him until he gives up his own spirit and dies for us. The night before all that unfolds, and I'm sure our Lord saw all of that coming, he goes into an upper room to celebrate the Passover. And when he gets into the upper room, he takes a loaf of bread, and he's the host. And as the disciples, all 12 of them, are around the table, he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. You take and eat of it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they had had the Passover meal together, he takes a cup of wine and he says to them, a new covenant has been poured out for you. It's been poured out in my blood. And I want you to take of it and I want you to drink it in remembrance of me. As you and I have the elements passed to us, I encourage you in your own way to rethink what God has done for you through his son Jesus.
this is our Lord's body, which is for you. So take and eat of it in remembrance of him. This is our Lord's body, which is... John the Baptist came under the power of God to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He has given himself for you and for me. Praise be unto God. Take and eat in remembrance of what he's done.
a sacrifice has truly been made. It has been poured out for us. The blood of the Lord Jesus. That your sin and mine might be washed away. Imagine how much he loves us. Take and drink of this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come around this table to be engrafted to your Holy Spirit to experience you anew, Lord. We thank you. We thank you, dear God, for what you have done for us. And we thank you in the precious name of the one who did it, Jesus himself, our Christ, our Messiah. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn is number 305, and let's stand and sing the third and fourth verses. Number 305. Yeah. 